Hey, everybody. How are we? Good. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know. If you guys know, I like movies. I think I bring it up once a week. But one of the ones I really like is called The Truman Show. Have you guys seen The Truman Show? And The Truman Show is a story about a man who's actually, from the time he was a baby, he's being filmed. And everybody's acting, and everybody, everything's a set, and everything's planned, and everything is planned to keep him in this little town. As he tries to escape, there's natural disasters, there's like a toxic spill or a and so everything is designed to keep him uh, getting up in the morning, going to his job, coming home. And for everybody else, it's a form of entertainment. For him, though, he starts to itch and he starts to wonder and he starts to be curious if there's something beyond the ordinary, if there's something beyond the mundane. And so he tries to escape. He starts to see maybe there is something else out there. And as soon as he tries to break away from the 40-hour work week, and that's all there is, three meals a day, having a family, going on vacation twice a year, trying your best not to get sick, planning where you're going to be buried, trying to save for your retirement, maybe going on vacation once you retire, like that being your life, that being your world, that what you are living for, as soon as he tries to break away from that, they throw everything at him to keep him there. They throw everything at him to keep him in that little world. And in him, he knows there's something bigger and he tries with all his strength and he pushes it and he pushes. The whole last scene they planned when he was a kid, his fake father died by drowning on a boat so that he would never get in the water, so that he would never sail because their set was too small. And so he gets on the water. He pushes through that fear. He pushes through. They throw storms at him. They try to drown him to keep him from going. But finally, he escapes. And finally, he steps into a bigger world. I love that story because it's like the story that Paul is talking about here. Christian, the enemy of our souls is quite content with God's children spending their lives on the cares of this life, trapped in this little world where we get to 80 years old and we look back and we're like, did I bury my talents? 
Even weighted down in the mundane and the quicksand of apathy, even as Jesus bids us to follow him, to take up our cross and follow, we can break our legs with excuses. I have to bury my father. Translated, I have to wait for my inheritance, and when I'm financially secure, then I'll think about mission. Then I'll think about using the gifts that you've given me. Or I will follow you if the path is easy and I'm shielded from the trials of life and that I'm comfortable. Can you guarantee that to me? Jesus said to that man, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to put his head. He bid us to come to take up our cross and to follow him. Like the cross is involved. Don't be shocked. I said it right at the beginning when I bid you to come. But push against the gates of hell, start to follow, start to pray for your neighbors, start to ask for opportunities, start to put on the armor to stand in the evil day, and the enemy will throw everything in his control to keep you asleep, neutralized, apathetic, in that place of the mundane. Following after Jesus, there will be resistance, battle, warfare. But honestly, I was thinking about it this morning. What choice do we have? What choice do we have? There is a bigger world God is calling us to, the kingdom of heaven itself. Don't we say when faced with the decision to carry on as usual, to prop up the status quo and give ourselves to the weeds to be choked out? Don't we say instead, Where else do we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Or in Matthew 16, 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. The general tendency and all those answers underestimate Jesus. To give him a measure of respect and honor, but to fall far short of honoring him for who he really is. Yeah, you're like a miracle worker, like Elijah, right? Or you're a prophet calling people to repent, like John the Baptist. Or you're a sensitive prophet calling people back to intimacy with God, like Jeremiah. But then he asked him, who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When we went to Israel, we got to go to Caesarea Philippi, and we found out Caesarea Philippi in this day and age used to be a very spiritual cultic place. And there was a cave that was believed by the local people that the gates of hell was this cave. It was a pathway to the underworld. So it was like literally the funnel where all of hell would come out of. And Jesus said, all of hell will not prevail against the church. All is might, every spirit, every bit of wickedness, every bit of evil will not prevail against the church. You see, he's called us to attack the night. The kingdom of God is coming into our fortified cities that have been so given over to the enemy. Just look around, look at the, look, follow 209 times. It just breaks your heart. 
the amount of violence that goes on here, the amount of racism and discrimination, the amount of injustice on an economic level, it's heartbreaking. But his kingdom's breaking into our cities, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our schools, and everywhere the sole of our foot touches. So others might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so today, because the battle's real, and because we need to be equipped to stand in that evil day, we look at a very necessary piece, the shield of faith. Faith makes oceans into streets and mountains into something you toss to the side. Faith finds streams in the deserts and bread in empty baskets. Faith drinks water from rocks and tastes the sweetness in bitter lakes. Faith uses a rock for a pillow and sees in a barren wasteland the city of God. Faith is the eyes of the soul that see the greatness, the goodness, and the glory of our God. So, what I want to look at today, what the shield of faith is, why we need it, and how to take it up. What the shield of faith is. I like this one because I think I've always misunderstood faith, just as an aside. And I've always tried to get more faith. I've tried to conjure it up, but I've tried to maybe say it in a different way. Maybe if you say, fine, then maybe that will, that's how you do it. Maybe it's the way you say it and really have misunderstood it. And so hopefully this will help clear some things up. Ephesians chapter six, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Notice first the armor, right? He said thus far, the verb is changing. It's having, it's been that, right? It's been thus far having the belt of truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, having the shoes of the gospel of peace, things we wear at all times. And then he's going to move into the shield of faith and he's going to say, take this up when it's necessary. The sword of the spirit, take this up. The helmet of salvation, take this up. So the belt of truth, remember, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having fastened on the belt of truth. Jesus, whose truth is to encompass our whole being, making every of us true. The truth stands against the attacks of doubt and neglect. Breastplate of righteousness and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness covering our hearts and our vital organs. Not a righteousness we provide or earn, we talked about this last week, but a foreign righteousness that was won for us at the cross. And Jesus, our righteousness, is making us righteous from one degree of glory to the next as we behold him. The breastplate helps us stand against the attacks of shame and guilt and the accusations of the enemy. The preparation of the gospel of peace. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, something that keeps our feet from slipping into doubting God's love. That's the attack to doubt God's love. So the gospel of peace girded about our feet, making our steps sure and secure. We remember that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He made a peace between enemies and made us friends. It's the proving of his love. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. We remember that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. When we were in open rebellion to him, he chased us and pursued us and made us his friends. He loves us. So having, that's kind of like a baseball player, right? A baseball player has his uniform. He wears it the whole time during the game. 
But at certain parts of the game, he takes up the bat, right? He takes it up because he's up to bat. If he's in the field, then he has got his glove, right? Because he's being called to action. Always wears the uniform, but when the right time takes up the bat, takes up the glove, designed for a specific kind of attack. And I think that the shield is very important in that. Shield in Greek is thureo. This writer, Polybius, he describes what Paul was looking at when he's looking at the shield. Remember, he's chained to Roman soldiers, but in the culture, Rome had conquered the world and they did it through the Pax Romana, peace through might right? Peace through violence, really. They'd put down any kind of open rebellion. They'd put it down with brutal violence. And so the soldiers were feared and their military might was second to none. The strategies they used and the things they did were absolutely incredible, especially at the time that they were in with not the kind of technology that we have now. The Greek writer uh, Polybius describes the early scutum in his histories. The Roman soldier consists firstly of a shield, the convex surface of which measures two and a half feet in width and four feet in length. The thickness at the rim being a palm's breadth. It is made of two planks glued together, the outer surface being then covered first with canvas and then with calfskin. Its upper and lower rims are strengthened by iron edging, which protects it from descending blows from injury when rested on the ground and also has an iron boss or an umbo fixed to it, which turns aside the most formable blows of stones, pikes, and heavy missiles or fiery arrows in general. Now we've seen the movies, right? Gladiator with Russell Crowe, and he's fighting in the arena and he's got the little shield and he's got the sword. And that's typically, we think about, you know, the soldiers, and this was different. This was a different kind of shield. This wasn't for hand-to-hand -hand combat. This was to go and besiege a city. This was a door. This was something you could crouch down and hide behind and you were completely safe. When they went to battle, they would soak their shields in water. And what would happen is they would come to the castle wall because they would besiege the city. They, Romans, came up with this tortoise formation where they would all lock their shields together and they would crawl under them. And they became basically like the shell of a turtle and they became this invincible force up against the wall because when they came to the wall, they're in the most dangerous situation because that's when they would throw hot tar on you. That's when they would throw these rocks that try to bludgeon you. That's when they would shoot their arrows that were lit on fire. And so soaking them in water, it would put that fire out as they would come against that wall. So it gives you this idea. So the shield of faith is big and it's protective, it encircles you. It's not so much about your agility. I play VR this game called Space Pirate Trainer, and it, it's so fun because you've got guns, but you can pull out a shield, but it's this tiny thing and you're trying to block all the lasers. It's like you have a Frisbee that you're trying to move on to the next level with, but that's not what's in mind. What's in mind is slamming this thing down and getting down and being fully protected against the enemy against the fiery arrows. So, the shield of faith. So if we have an idea of what the shield is, the shield of faith, it's big, it's protective, can extinguish fiery arrows, then what is faith? Faith in its most simple definition is acting on the truth. Acting on the truth.
boiled down, acting on the truth. Now we're going to build on that a little bit. If you don't know the truth and act on the truth, faith is really a meaningless word, right? You remember in James where James is talking and they're like, he's anticipating his audience and they're like, we believe in God. And what does he say? He says, well, so do the demons and they tremble. They have a greater faith. They actually respond as he's calling them to action, to that you don't just, I believe, but to now step out in that belief, which we'll talk about. Faith is acting on truth. In order to have faith, you have to know the truth. Where do we find the truth? In God's word, specifically revealed in the person of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a truth, not more truth. I am the truth, right? His tone, his tenor, his attitude toward the sinner, toward the broken person. You wonder what God's like, Jesus said. It's me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Faith is only faith when it's tethered to the truth, right? Because if it lacks truth, then it's just a lot of activity. It's a lot of motion. It's a lot of commotion. I think about cults. I think about Mormons. Um, they have a lot of activity. A lot of activity. They actually do a lot of good in this world. They're constantly helping. They're doing this. They're, I mean, they believe something. They have conviction. And they act on it. But they don't have the truth. So faith is only faith when it's tethered to the truth. Acting like God is telling the truth. What he says is real. And then, okay, that's reality. When God says, like we talked about the, a couple of weeks ago, I remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. To remember it no more. To, to truly live your life like that's reality. Like what he says about you and your new identity that you're adopted into his family and have all the rights and the privileges as the son himself. To live like that, to just, okay, I'm gonna, yeah, okay. I'm gonna be bold, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. That's the idea that he's talking about. A lot of people who talk about faith are not connected to the truth and wonder why faith isn't working. So they go around and look for more faith. They look for more faith. Truth is what God says about a matter. Also, faith isn't about feelings. Feelings are circumstantially driven. If things are going well, I feel good. If things are going bad, I feel bad. You can't control circumstances. Faith isn't tied to our feelings. Otherwise, it would be up and down as my feelings are. Faith is tethered to truth. Truth. Now, often when you believe something, your feelings will follow when you see God working or when you trust that he is, then all of a sudden you'll erupt in praise. But don't be led by feelings. Faith is acting on the truth whether I like the truth or not, which is really big. We talked about this. People don't like absolute truth. In fact, the idol of our culture for our younger generation is freedom. 
freedom. And if you tell them that there's an absolute truth, an absolute standard, that feels like the destruction of their freedom. Don't say that. No, I want to be free. I will decide my own boundaries. I'll decide my own truth. I'll figure out and I'll be true to that. And you have to recognize my truth, right? But there's things in God's word, even for us Christians, that God says that we don't always like. That's why we like the promises calendar where we're like, we collect them. We're like, I like this one. I like this one. I like this one. Faith is acting on the truth, whether I like the truth or not. I feel the truth or not. Or I agree with the truth. <laughs> right? So often the word of God contradicts us. And it needs to. It needs to contradict our worldview. It needs to, we need to be open to the Word of God contradicting our foundations or why we do what we do. We need to let the Word of God come in like that two-edged sword and divide us in that sense to, to see what's there, to see why are we doing what we're doing. I think of Revelation, the way Jesus so gently goes to those churches and he just tells them the truth. The church at Ephesus, they thought they were gold star. In fact, they get to go first. We're the first church. And Jesus is like, I'm going to take your lampstand away because you've left your first love. You love me. You just don't love me primarily. Like, and they, to hear that, they need to hear that. That's a necessary diagnosis. Does faith make God move? That's a question and something we hear a lot, right? If you have the right faith, if you have enough, faith, if you have more faith, then you can move God to act and do things. If you believe that, though, you're going to be looking for more faith and not more knowledge. That's more truth. What's truly true about God and what he says is real in the universe, that's where we go, right? Because all through scripture, God's constantly telling us, you don't need a lot of faith. It could be as small as a mustard seed. And you could literally say to this mountain, move, and it will be moved. That's crazy. So it's not about more faith. It's about the object of our faith. If you put a little bit of faith and a whole bunch of truth, that's all you need in what God says. If you believe what God says and you know what God says about situations and circumstances, you're good. That's amazing, right? Faith accesses what God has already done in grace. Faith is the point of access, not the point of power. The power is in what God has already done for you because of Jesus Christ. You hear that? Faith accesses what God has already done in grace. We always talk about withdrawing the blessings, right? So many times we we pray and we're going to read it. God, will you just bless me? He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Like, it's yours. Just draw on it. Just believe it, right? Just believe that it is. Faith is the point of access, not the point of power. The power is in what God has already done. Murray says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Not in your faith. Don't have faith in faith. Don't be strong in yourself. And, and Because what so often happens is we try to conjure up more faith which often is just whipping up our emotions. If I believe right, if I, or if I just, if I just can do it. When I was a, when I was younger, I got invited to my first dance, and I was just so excited to go. But unfortunately, being a teenager, I had this like 
crazy zit on the forehead. And the way I used to wear my hair, it was down to my shoulders and it just parted in the middle. So it was like drapes dra pulling apart on the stage and saying, look at this. It looked like I had a third eye. Anyways, being a man of faith, a kid of faith, a teenager of faith, I read the story about Naaman the leper and how he washed seven times. And I thought, I just need faith. And, and so I got into the shower. I scrubbed my forehead once, twice, three times, four times, four. Oh no, I almost lost count. I can't lose count. It's gotta be seven, seven times. So it was a long shower. And then I got out and the, the fog was on the mirror. So I'm like, okay, I gotta let all this evaporate and stuff. And I'm so excited. Thank you, Lord, for moving. You are so good. And uh, before the fog was gone, I could just see a glow of red on my forehead from just abusing my skin with abrasive things. I made it 10 times worse. I made it 10 times worse. See, at that moment, I'm trying to conjure up faith. I'm trying to armbar God into doing what I want for him to do. And so often, what does the truth say? It says, I'm in control and I love you. Everything passes through my nail scarred. So often, we want to use faith because we think we know better. When what faith does is look at truth and lean on him and trust and say, God knows better. God knows better. So often we say to God, my will be done, right? And I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. I'll take things seriously, Lord. I'll be used by you. I'll dedicate my life to the mission field. And we're trying to get God to do for us. We're saying my will be done. But what is faith? Faith says, here's what I want. Like Jesus, I want to escape. If there's any other way, let this cut pass from me. But faith is... Not my will, but your will be done. Because you're good, and you're all wise, and you know all things. So we don't try to conjure things up. Romans 5, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So right there, he's saying faith gives you the access into the grace. What is grace? It's what he has done for you above and beyond, right? What we didn't earn, what he simply gives as demerited favor. His favor bestowed on us. His lavishness towards us, like pouring out all his goodness on us. What does it say? It says that we believe that's true that he tells us that's true. He proved it on the cross, which we'll get to. Faith gives you access into what grace has done for you. God has already blessed us. Our problem is not getting more from God, but accessing what he has already given to us. Ephesians 1.3, guys, we know this. We just read this book. Jesus has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing from heaven, has, past tense, all, every. Or in Ephesians 2.6, it doesn't say he will enthrone us in heaven. It says he has already seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the seat at the right hand of the throne of God, and that's where he's put us, he seated us with himself, is not something that means much to us today, but it's the place of the greatest power in the kingdom. It's the prime minister's place. It's the place of the greatest intimacy. You have the ear of the king. You're at the right hand of the place of favor. It says, all power, all intimacy is already 
ours. What would it look like if we acted on it? That's faith. What would it look like if we believed that was so? 2 Peter 1.3 says that therefore we have everything necessary for life and godliness. Hebrews 11.1 1 says now faith is the substance of things hoped for. So it's got substance, right? It's the conviction of things not seen. It's real like truth is real. It's weighty like God's glory is weighty. And here we come again. Faith is the eyes of the soul that see the greatness, the goodness, and the glory of our God. And then acting on that truth like it's truer than what we see by our sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. So it's interesting you brought that up. I think of the Red Sea, and then I think of the crossing of the Jordan River, right? So what do you have? You've got on one, God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, right? And then he parts the Red Sea. In that situation, it was really hard to stand still. Everybody wanted to run and scatter. Why? because the Egyptians, they were coming at them with chariots about to slaughter them. They had their backs against the sea and the panic and the feeling and the anxiety and being terrified, you want to run. And God says, stand still. And what do they do? They stand still. And God parts the waters and they go over on dry land, right? And then for some reason, the enemies, their enemies, ride their chariots in and God closes the waters on them like a grave. But then there's the Jordan River, different. They had all the time in the world. They didn't want to run. In fact, a lot of them didn't want to go over. Remember, there's two tribes that said, we'll hang out over here. We're good. We don't want to cross the Jordan. They had all the time in the world. And so what does God say? Step in. You got to walk. You got to take a step. You got to step out. And then it parts. So priests get the Ark of the Covenant on like their most precious possession. It has the Ten Commandments in them. It has manna in it. It has Aaron's rod in it, like these precious things that were symbols of God's faithfulness to them. And then they step into the water and what happens? Well, at first, nothing. They first step and nothing. And then they take another step and nothing. And this was at flood time. This is when like they couldn't build rafts to get across. It was too crazy. There was too much water was flowing too rapidly. It was flowing too hard. And as they step more into the water, then all of a sudden, parts the water. The disciples during the storm is one of my favorites because Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. And what he means by that is he likes that a lot. And then Jesus marvels at faith, right? What is that? It's just the full confidence that God's in control, that what God says about reality is real. That's faith that he marvels at. Wow, you really believe it. You like take it on face value. You're the centurion soldier. Right? He's, oh no, I understand authority. I say to this soldier, go do this, and he does. If you are who you say you are, and you have all authority, you hold every molecule and atom in the palm of your hand, you don't have to come. You're good. You could just say, why don't you leave now disease? And he marvels at his faith. I haven't found faith like this in Israel. What was it the amount? No, it was the object. He just took what God was saying at face value about reality, about his character. I love the disciples because Jesus says something to them. They're all terrified, right? In the storm, Jesus gets into the boat. He rebukes the wind, says, shut up. And the clouds just part, the sun comes through. The waves are just still, right? And what does he say to them? 
he says, where is your faith? Mm. Where is your faith? He didn't say you need more faith. He didn't say you need to grow your faith. He didn't say you need to do this, this, and this with your faith. He says, take what knowledge you already have on me. I just fed the 5,000. I brought food from nothing. From five, I multiplied, I, I fed 9,000 people or however many were that day, counting women and children. You literally passed it out. You literally held baskets full of food that would not run out. Bring what little knowledge you have on me to bear on your circumstances. Where is your faith? It's not that you need more. Bring what you know of me to bear on your situation and circumstance. That's faith. It's not the amount, it's the objects, right? Two people traveling on a plane. One's ridden on a plane a hundred times and he's snoozing. He's got the neck pillow. He's got the noise canceling Bose headphones and he's just loving it. He doesn't even want to get off. He goes, can I just fly somewhere else? I was sleeping so good. The guy sitting next to him is terrified, shaking, goes to the bathroom a couple of times and throws up, taking pills and Ambien and all kinds of Xanax because he's so afraid that he's going to crash. Do they both make it to their destinations? Why? It's because the object. It's because the pilot gets them there. The plane gets them there. It's not that one believed and the other didn't. Or he placed his faith and he got on the plane, even though his faith was shaky. That's why the man with the demonized kid, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He's like, I think I do. I want to. But I don't know. Are you going to come through? Are you going to fail? And so, help my unbelief. Do you understand? Faith, faith is acting on God's truth. It's the point of access. It, it, it's just, it's believing. All through scripture, one of the great themes is the just live by faith. Those who are made right with God, just, justified, believe that it's so. And they walk in that new identity that has been won for them at the cross. That's how you live your life. The just live by faith. Those who are justified believe that God really justified them, that he has taken their sin as far as the east is from the west, that he adores them, that they have an inheritance, that they're a beloved child of God, that God dotes on them, that he truly does sing over them, not just sometimes, but all the time, because Christ's righteousness is secure, it's invincible, it's impenetrable, it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's the perfect obedience that he put on us, like so that we look perfectly obedient to the Father. There's nothing in the way believing that's true, walking in that. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. So why do we need it? And this is the critical point. So like we said earlier, if you're trying to besiege a city, you didn't use the shield in hand-to-hand combat on the way to the capital city, this big door-like shield. Nor did you use it once you broke it into the city and were now mopping up the enemy. You used it as you were besieging the city, as you were actually at the critical moment in which the whole campaign hung in the balance. Because as you were actually assaulting the walls, that's the most dangerous place in the whole campaign. Because you are unbelievably vulnerable at that point. Because what they would do is they would shoot their fiery arrows. They would throw pitch and tar and hot molten lead. And so it would be under there besieging that wall and you would need to extinguish those things. Because what would so often happen is if that shield wasn't put up or there was a crack in the defense, is you would turn and see your fellow soldier, Jerry, 
who you've been fighting with since you were a young person, catch on fire and yell and scream and thrash. And then you hear it all around you. The point, the most desperate part of the battle was in that moment. Could you withstand the fire? Could you withstand that? Could you get through the walls? Because it didn't matter how big your army was when you came up against a fortified wall and a fortified defense. You had to endure. You had to get through it. You had to come through on the other side. And there were many times and many battles where they would scatter and they would run and they would retreat and they would lose the battle because they would not endure at the wall when the fire was coming down. So it kind of paints the picture, right? These fiery arrows, as we often hear, could be doubts. They could be temptations. As we think about what these fiery arrows are coming at us. But I think what Paul has in mind here when he uses the word fiery is suffering. First Peter 4.12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. In Revelation chapter 3, the same word is used here, fiery. It says, the church is like gold purified in the fire. It's talking about the things of the saints. So the shield, it's for those darkest times. It's for those times in which certain kinds of surprising tragedies and sufferings and amazing disappointments and disillusioning occurrences seem to be hurled down upon you from out of nowhere. They surprise you. They shock you. That's their whole purpose. They're there to alarm you, to make you panic, to make you flee to make you run, to make you turn your back on God, to make you question His goodness, His power, His authority, and His justice. They're not there just to hurt you, but to scare you. They're there to get you to turn around and run. That's when you have to put up the shield of faith. Suffering is difficult and many fellow soldier has been taken out because of suffering suffering is that fire that can come out of nowhere that can come from friends that can come from yourself and your own activities but it can lead you to a place where you just don't know down from up you don't know if what you believed in was good. Your foundation feels shaky. Some of the seasons that we've been through, I've been honest with you guys as a church. I, the only thing I was tethered to, or the only thing tethered to me was Jesus. I couldn't, I couldn't pretend like he didn't exist, but man, I wanted to leave everything else behind. There's too much pain. There's too much trauma there's too much heartache and tears and long nights and i mean to the point where your body's affected where your body is taking on there's this book called the body knows the score like 
your body takes on the trauma, the suffering that you're going through, even if it's something like rejection or being ostracized from community or something like it is, it's crazy. And it always seems like, at least what I do is I used to give God, I'd be like, God, you can, here's my plan for my life. It's amazing. And there's suffering in there. There's a cross that I'm going to take up and follow you, but it only go here. You can't come here. You can't lead me all the way to Golgotha. You can't lead me into the tomb. Just I'll walk with you. I'll be like Simon, you know, who, who took the cross with you. And it said, all right, you now go. Like, that's my plan. And God always seems to do more. And at first, it feels more like you can handle. Why does he allow suffering and fire? Zechariah 3, 19, it says, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. First Peter 1, 7 says that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you two stories that help us understand this process. The story of Job is one. Or the story of Job. God goes to Satan. Or wait, no, Satan comes to God. And God and him are dialoguing in this Job chapter 1. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Look at him. There's none like him on the earth. And what does Satan say? He says, he only worships you because you have a hedge about him. You protect him from suffering is what he says. You've blessed him and he doesn't have to suffer. If you take that hedge down, if you let me bring suffering into his life, he will curse you. And so God says, you can do this and this. But not this, you can't take his life. In one day, Job goes from being one of the wealthiest people on the planet Earth to losing it all. He loses his whole family, except for his wife. He loses his kids. He loses his daughters. He loses all his possessions. Everything is wiped out in one single day. And not only that, he gets stricken with boils. Boils so big that he you know, would gladly, it says, take a pot shard, a piece of broken pottery to scrape the boils out of his skin. He laid in ash to get some kind of relief. And his wife looks at him and she's, what are you clinging to? Curse God and die. He says, no, show the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why would God let this happen? Why would God do that? Because Satan and God have two very different purposes for the fire and for suffering. Satan wanted to bring the fire down to consume Job. And God let Satan bring the fire down to refine Job. In fact, even Job says in Job 23.10, But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So that's one. You've got the story of Job, right? And the enemy wants to destroy him with suffering and the fire. He wants to ruin his faith. He wants to take him out. The battle is thick. I, the battle is 
vicious when it comes to suffering. When a loved one dies too early, the enemy's right there to say, he raised the dead. He couldn't keep your loved one from perishing. Oh, but you prayed for months. You had the whole church praying for this little child with leukemia. But he doesn't want to, he doesn't listen. He doesn't want to hear you. Do you feel like the tension in the heart that's, yeah, why, Lord? So Satan wants the suffering to destroy. God wants and uses the suffering to refine. The story of Peter is the second one. And this is a different kind of suffering. For Peter, it was the death of his hopes in his dreams, right? In a single night. You remember Peter's, man, Lord, though they all deny you, I'll never deny you. I'm your guy. I'm the one. He uses the very words, like, I, I will fight. I will go to the death for you, right? And why? Peter's excited. He gets to see things that the other disciples didn't get to see, right? Jesus had said, as we read earlier, Peter, on this confession of yours, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You're a rock. And uh, Peter, yeah, the guy. And when the Messiah comes into his kingdom, when he overthrows Rome, when he overthrows our oppressors and he, he wipes them out for all of their injustice against us and he puts Israel back on that, that place where they will rule and reign in righteousness and the nations will come and see that our God is God. Man, I'll be in those places of power. James and John send their mother to ask, but I know, I see the way Jesus looks at me. I know he's given me these places of power that it's coming for me. And then his hopes die in a single night as Jesus is arrested and put on trial. And it looks like his Messiah, his Savior, is going to die. So what's he to do? He says a couple of times, I don't know the man. He denies Jesus. And in Luke, it says that Jesus looks over and makes eye contact on the third time. When a little girl says, hey, were you his disciple? And he says, I swear I don't know the man. I make an oath under heaven. I don't know him. And the rooster crows. And Jesus looks at him. And Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. Here's the thing. Jesus said, Simon Peter, Satan wanted to have you and sift you like wheat. So Satan, like Job, is after Peter's destruction. He's after to ruin him. He wants to make Peter the next Judas. Judas went out and hung himself. He wants to destroy every single one of those disciples. He wants to cause such failure, such a dashing of the dreams and hopes in Peter's life that he wants to end it all. He's after Peter's destruction. He wants to use suffering in that way. And that's what Jesus says, Simon, Satan wanted to have you and to sift you like wheat. But here's the turn. But I have prayed for you. And therefore, when you turn, Strengthen the brethren. Do you know what it means, Peter? You're going to come through the fire. And when you're done, you're going to be ready to be a leader. You're going to be able to strengthen your brothers. Not despite your failure, but because of your failure. Because the leaders I'm looking for are refined ones. 
our broken ones, our leaders who have had their hopes and dreams about what they want to do for God dashed so that they might come humbly to God and he might then do what he's going to do, which is far greater than we could ever imagine or even hope. A great leader is somebody who's broken, who's seen, just like Job and Peter, what his pride was, and therefore he wasn't destroyed. He was refined because in the midst of the fire, with Jesus' help, Peter said different between the gold and the dross. He had to choose, who do I serve now? And he served Christ. It has to happen to become a leader. Faith is looking at what Jesus has said. Faith is looking at who God is. That's why at the end of the book of Job, the reason Job made it is because God showed up and said, don't you see, Job? The problem is you're full of pride. You think you're wise. You think you're right. You think you're trying to put me on the stand in the courtroom. Where were you when I stretched out the heavens like a garment? Where were you when I called all the stars into being and named them? What has he said? I heard you with the hearing of my ear, but then I saw you and I repent in dust and ashes. I was so wrong about you. You are far more glorious. You're far more grand. You are far greater. Peter, wait, you conquered death? You mean you aren't just overthrowing Rome and, and, and overthrowing our oppressors for a couple of decades? You overthrew the oppressors from the beginning of time, Satan, sin, and death. You put death to death itself. What? You are far greater. You are the conquering king. You are not a prophet like Jeremiah. You're not a preacher like John the Baptist. You're not a miracle worker like Elijah. You are the son of the living God. What you do is good. What you do is right. What you choose for me is right. So at the end of his life, Peter Jesus tells him, Peter, don't worry about John, what he's going to do, what I got for him. At the end of your life, here's what I got planned for you. I'm going to go where you don't want to go. And we know from history that Peter is crucified for his faith in Jesus. But he's to be crucified like my Messiah's. That's too great of a thing. Crucify me upside down. What a different human being. Because he was refined. Because of the dross of self-sufficiency self-righteousness was removed through that suffering. Wow, sorry. I just think he walked whew, he walked into suffering so victorious and so full of joy. That's why he wrote Count it all joy. Because God's doing something through this. And the shield of faith goes, yes, it hurts, but I trust. It hurts, but 
the fire's there, it's coming on, but God's got a purpose. He's doing something greater. He's going to take what the enemy meant for evil, and he's going to work it for good. Man, John 15, the pruning of the tree, there's homework. When a gardener prunes a tree, you think he's killing it. And the gardener says, you don't understand. If I didn't do this, I would be killing it. I do it that it might bear more fruit. Hebrews 12, the discipline from the fathers, as you mentioned, Matt. Faith is the eyes of the soul that see the greatness, the goodness, and the glory of God. How do we take it up? Do you know what faith, the shield of faith is? Faith is looking. Faith is looking, right? We do not walk, not, we walk by faith, not by sight. He's, it's looking. Faith is the eyes of the soul that see the greatness, the goodness, and the glory of God. We know the truth, and then we look at that, and we believe it's true, and then we act on that truth. Faith is acting on God's truth. Faith is looking. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. That means we see him who is unseen. Faith is looking at God instead of at the trial. Faith is remembering God. Dothan in the Bible is a very important place. It's the place where my wife just was talking about this, where Elisha is surrounded by the enemy. And then he prays to the Lord to open his servant's eyes. And his servant's eyes are opened and he sees the chariots of fire all around. He sees the armies of the Lord of hosts. He's, oh man, they dwarf the enemy. But Dothan also has another important place in the Bible. Guess what else Dothan, what happened in Dothan? Dothan was the place where Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. And I'm sure Joseph prayed, God, deliver me. God, this is unjust. And he was sold as a slave. Faith sees that God is just as present with Joseph, with his chariots and his armies and the Lord of hosts as he was with Elisha. Because what does God do? Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt and through his wisdom, nations all around are saved because he knows how to handle a famine and plans for it. Faith Trust God. So God demonstrated his love for us. He loves them. He died for you. I think of the three Hebrew boys in the fire, right? Who said, we're not going to bow. So Nebuchadnezzar brings suffering into their life. In fact, he says, turn the furnace up seven times hotter. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? That's what I feel like my journey with God sometimes is. As I get through one fiery trial, and then it's like the next one is seven times hotter. And you're like, what in the world? They go in and they're bound with ropes. They're thrown into this furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says to one of his servants, didn't we throw three in there? Why is there four? And the fourth has the countenance like the son of God. And so then he bids them to come out of the fire. And they come out of the fire. What's the only thing gone from them? says they don't even smell like fire. They don't even smell like smoke. But the things that bound them, the dross that was burned off. The gospel says 
that Jesus is with you in the fire. Because at the cross, the fire was heated to an infinite amount. And he was utterly consumed by it. So that you wouldn't be consumed by it. So now, because of the victory of the resurrection, because of bearing that, God can actually make suffering serve your joy. The ultimate defeat of evil, as we often say, is to make evil do the exact opposite of what it's trying to do, to bring good in your life. That's what God did with Job. Satan said he'll destroy you, and Job is more secure in his faith. So as we talk about the shield of faith, we take it up in those moments of suffering. They're going to come in our lives. We look with the eyes of our soul and see the greatness, the goodness, and the glory of our God. And sometimes, all the time, like those Roman soldiers, those shields were made in such a way where they would click together. And when one person was weak, when they lost their footing, everybody else would hold them up. And so we need community in suffering. We need other shield-wearing Christians in the midst of our suffering. And guys, sometimes that just means sitting with somebody, being present. It doesn't mean giving them the answers. But sometimes we bear them up and bear their burden. Let's fulfill the law of Christ. Let me pray for us. We'll close in worship and take communion. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, I just want to say thank you personally. I feel not only like the leper who was cleansed and want to say thank you, but I also feel like like that ore that's been refined. Thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. Thank you that you refine. Thank you that you prune. Thank you that you're after our joy. Lord, I can testify today, every bit and the weight and the heat and the fire You've been glorified in it. You, you're more beautiful. My heart's been set free. Those bonds have been burned off. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you don't waste our suffering. Thank you that you're going to wipe every tear from our eyes on that final day. Thank you that you're ending suffering, Lord. Thank you that everything crooked will be made straight, that the thorns on the flowers will be removed. And so, Lord, we praise you. And Lord, we look to you. We don't look to our own faith, our own ability. We look to you, the man in the fire. The man in the fire. And um, as we keep our eyes on you, even as Peter kept his eyes on you in the storm.
you step out into what you say is true. So bless this time now as we focus on your body broken and your blood shed. Yet we're people of this new covenant. We thank you so much.